I'm small. And I'm Craig and I'm tall. Welcome to Small and Tall, where two best friends explore movies, franchises, and genres and post it here for your enjoyment. What are we doing this month, Gregory? Uh, this month we're talking about uh, Pride Month movies. We're celebrating Pride Month through various queer stories of love and loss, of gender loss. and exploration. And loss. Um, and loss. Um, before we get started on that, though, I want to talk about something. I need your opinion. So, Both. Kayla, friend of the show Kayla, guest host Kayla, um, she found out that I will sometimes watch movies first thing in the morning. Usually it's because, like, that's how I have to schedule it to watch it for the podcast. Sometimes I'll watch a movie late at night, stop halfway through, and then finish it in the morning. She thinks this is crazy. She calls it my serial killer trait. And I want to know if it's actually that weird or if she's just blowing it out of proportion. I don't think it's weird that you watch them in the morning, but I do think it's weird that you watch them in chunks. Well, I don't purposely watch them in chunks. Like, I watched Brokeback Mountain last night and I got like an hour in and it was like one in the morning and I'm like, I need to wake up tomorrow. Let's put it on pause and just finish it tomorrow morning. And that's what I did. Um... So I don't think it's that weird to watch movies at eight in the morning. And sometimes it's Brokeback Mountain. Sometimes it's Transformers. Sometimes it's Spider-Man 3. Like, I cannot control when the sleepies get the better of me. And I just need to finish a movie in the morning. I am an all or nothing type of person. But I'm more of a movie person over TV. So I'm movies at any time. But like I said, I'll sit and watch it in one sitting rather than getting up and coming back to it under any circumstance. I mean, I like doing that too. But sometimes we watch Most a two hour and four, so, sometimes we watch a three hour movie and I have to go to work and I just need to come back and finish it later. Usually it's the scheduling thing or the movie's bad and I just need to give myself a breather. <laughs> hey, I just wait. <laughs> I just wait until later and watch it all then. <laughs> I did not expect the me breaking it into chunks was going to be the part that you would dissect out of this. I thought that was normal. I've told you that it was weird before. Okay. I find it odd. Memories get flushed with no pomp or circumstance in my brain. Um, so, that being said, let's jump into our movies. As always, Small and Tall is an all-spoilers podcast. If you're not prepared for that, I don't know what to tell you. You grow up, I guess. Yeah. that. You know what? I, that's what I'm going to pivot to. I'm going to pivot to shame. You know, maybe if I shame our audience enough, they'll start keeping Craig, up. Craig, what? Reel, reel it in. Reel it in. Reel it in. We, we can't shame the audience. <sighs> okay. This month, we're watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight, and The Danish Girl. Um, we're going to start with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Let's just kind of jump into it. So I want you to understand the context of me watching this movie, right? So on Permanent Good, we've been watching all the Transformers movies. So for the last 10 days, I've been watching nothing but Transformers movies. And then I watched The Flash in theaters, which was bad. I don't want to get into it. <laughs> and then I came home from the movie theater to watch this movie. So imagine the tonal whiplash that I experienced from seven just brain off bad action movies and then pivoted directly into 
a French slow burn period piece romance movie. The the vibes are, could not be more different. Hey, would you expect anything less from anything French? Well, I didn't know it was French going into it. I um I opened it up on Hulu and I looked at like the audio settings and it was just French original and I went, "Okay, huh, t- I got to batten down the hatches. I got to focus on this puppy cuz um anything that's not in audio English, I really got to pay attention to." Yeah, that was definitely something I so I knew that it was in French, but you know, I forgot that meant that I needed to pay a lot of attention to it until I started watching it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know French. I have to pay attention. And here's the thing about foreign language movies is you never know what's important until you've missed it. Because there has been there was more than one spot in this movie. And this isn't the movie's fault. This is my fault where I would like tune out or check my phone for something and then I would look at the screen and they're talking about something wildly different. And it's been like 10 seconds. And I'm like, okay, how did we get here? I gotta, I gotta go back. So like I had to rewind a few scenes several times because I like missed a line of dialogue or a transition shot that was Im- accidentally important. Yeah, I kept getting interrupted while watching it by pets or my partner to the point where I was like, Nobody's allowed to bother me. I need to focus on this. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a romance movie. It's set in like 19th century France, something like that. Um, Old France. And there's this woman who's about to be married off to an Italian man. And another woman gets hired to paint her portrait. And portraits take a long time to paint, so these two are, like, kind of close to each other for a few weeks. And through this time spent together painting this portrait and living on the grounds together and having time alone together, these two eventually fall in love and have to balance the consequences of being in love with each other, but understanding that one of them has an obligation to get married in like a week. Intense. Yeah. Um, and so when I say that this movie's a slow burn, I mean it. Like, gang, they don't, this movie's two hours long and they kiss at like the 90 minute mark. I love me a good slow burn. It, it takes a while. Um, and this movie's also pretty quiet. Like, there's not a lot of dialogue. There is several minutes can go by in this movie without anybody saying anything. There's lots of scenes. That's just Marianne, who is the person painting the portrait. She's just kind of like holding a candle and wandering through the grounds. We get several scenes that are like that. So it's very, like, atmospheric. It's very... Um, purposeful in its tone, and it's very like artsy. Is though is just the simple way to put it. Yeah, there's very very minimal soundtrack to this as well, so that way you're fully there with these people in those moments, and that takes a second to get used to. But I also think it makes the story feel even more authentic. Yeah, at no point do you feel like disconnected with these characters they are all so unbelievably grounded in what's going on around them 
that you kind of have no choice but to invest yourself in what's going on. Because if it, it's it's really as simple as if you do not like the characters, then you're just going to have a bad time watching this movie. Because this whole movie is about these two characters. There are other people that come in and out of the story, but like these two women make or break how you feel about the movie. Definitely. Definitely. And I will say that Sophie, who's like a house hand or a housemaid is one of my favorites of the side characters. She's pretty much the only other main character that you see for more than five minutes of screen time. But I think that she even evened out their story more so to keep it balanced, to take away from, you know, all of the intimacy that was happening. Yeah, there's lots of really cute moments throughout this movie. The The joy, the interesting part of watching this movie is watching these two realize they like each other and watching them get more and more comfortable with each other until that shoe finally drops and they do something about it. So, like, there's a moment where Marianne is kind of, like, toying around on this little piano and um, Heloise sits next to her and they kind of, like, start playing a little bit together or she's pl- or Marianne is playing for Heloise and this is before either of them really recognize that they have feelings for each other. But it's in that moment that I think we first feel, like, the romantic tension between the two of them. And it's just, like, little things where, like, when Marianne goes to stand up, they, like, hold eye contact for just a beat longer than you would expect them to. And, like, in that single beat, like, so much emotion is broadcasted between them and for the audience in a way that I thought was really cool. Yeah, there's so many beautiful shots in this movie that I feel just need to be, like, hung up in a museum. Yeah, and this movie, like, because it's about a portrait, because it's about painting, like, it goes out of its way to, like, talk about artistry in a way that um, feels right for the tone of this movie, and the cinematography reflects that. Um, shots of portraits themselves, shots of people posing for portraits, um, the landscape, like all of that stuff is so purposefully chosen to convey this theme. And what's really interesting, the thing that I took away from this movie more than anything else is simply how quiet it is. And not just, obviously, I don't mean like volume wise, but there's the color scheme in this movie is very quiet. The the places that they are at feel very quiet. Like it's all this kind of like homestead kind of vibes. It's designed to make it feel familiar in a way that I think it accomplishes very well. Yeah, even in the scenes where they're on the beach it feels almost like it feels peaceful but at the same time it's almost jarring how loud the waves are compared to all the scenes you previously had before it now here's what i will say we're talking about how i sometimes need to uh take breaks from movies this was one of those movies i didn't watch it over several days i watched it in one sitting but like 
like every 40 minutes. I pretty much watched it in its three acts where like 40 minutes would go by and I would like stop and I would like check my mail and then another 40 minutes would go and I would like do something else just because I needed like this movie is slow and quiet to the point where like I needed to do something so that way I could give this movie my full attention. I needed my brain to like reset for a second. I imagine if I were to watch this in the movie theater or in some environment where I couldn't pause it, I would get restless and antsy fast. This movie is not hyperactivity friendly. Yeah. Take note. <laughs> um, what I also really like about this movie is, and maybe this is a weird direction to take this, is like, even though this movie has sexual elements in it, at no point do I really feel like this movie is sexualized. And even with, like, casual nudity that goes through in this movie, at no point was I like, oh yeah, they're gonna get it on. Um, and that is a difficult thing to accomplish. Incredibly. Every moment of nudity or even like every, I guess, more sexual scene that they have together feels incredibly purposeful to their story. It's not there just to please audiences. It's there to continue to show them getting closer and closer to one another. Yeah, so it really showcases, like, the genuine romance behind it all. Um, I, the only part of, like, the character development that I felt, like, was annoying is, like, there's very little conflict, I think, in this movie. I feel like in the third act, they add some conflict just so there is some, but there's a moment where Heloise is the one that's getting married, right? And... Um, you'll have to remind me of what I get wrong in this, but Marianne does not want Heloise to go and be married. Like, obviously she wants the two of them to be in love together. And Heloise kind of gets frustrated at Marianne for thinking like that. And she says something to the effect of like, you are mad at me because I have to go get married and that's not fair to me. Like, and Marianne is kind of like, well, you aren't even going to try to fight this. Like, you know, this isn't right, but you aren't going to do anything about it. And so it's like 10 minutes of the movie where there's this like uncomfortable tension between the two of them because they can't really agree on like, the future of this romance, but then they get it settled and it's kind of not anything in the long run. And that was like the one moment of the movie where I was kind of rolling my eyes and being like, are we really doing this right now? Well, okay. So for those moments, I feel like, you know, she was like, you know, you're mad at me because I have to go and get married. And Marianne was like, I know. And I know that that's selfish. It's like she didn't want to be selfish. She knew what she was getting into when all of this began. And she knows that it's selfish. And that's why when Heloise is like, well, are you going to ask me to stay? Marianne's like, no, because she knows that she can't. She knows that it won't be accepted. She knows that, you know, she is being f that Heloise is being forced into this marriage, which also, you know, solution to everybody's problems. Maybe we don't force people to marry people they don't want to. Like, you know. And yes. so they kind of like, they 
just have to secede to the fact that this isn't going anywhere and they have to just bask in her last day before she has to go to Milan and Marianne has to go back to where she's from. Yeah. Um, it's also important to know that the reason that Heloise is getting married is because her sister was originally supposed to be marrying this man in Milan. But her sister was like, I actually don't want to do that. And maybe kills herself a little bit. And so now Heloise has to step in. And now she's the one that's obligated to get married to this man. So that makes the situation even more difficult because Heloise wasn't supposed to be in this situation. You know, her sister was the one getting married. But now this has kind of been thrust upon her. And I think that's also some of the frustration that was letting out. But that's not part of the conversation. They really don't bring that up very much. They bring it up at the beginning of the movie. Heloise is kind of like, my sister was supposed to get married. She died. Now I'm getting married. And it kind of doesn't get brought up again. I think that could have been an element during the conversation where Marianne and Heloise were arguing about getting married, I think that that could have been brought up again and made that whole conversation feel more... It just would have brought another point to the table, I think is what I'm trying to say. Like, they weren't looking at it from all the aspects. And maybe they didn't need to. Maybe it went unspoken and that was enough for them. But I think as an audience, I think that would have been a nice reminder to kind of put more stake onto what Heloise is kind of fighting about. I, yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from with that. I can see that it would add, it would have added a little bit more depth to the argument at hand. Um, going back to you mentioning the scene of them kind of like playing, or when Marianne is playing piano for Heloise, there are so many points in the final act of this movie or film, whatever you want to call it, that <laughs> call back to the first half of the movie. Like with them sitting and playing piano, there's, um, you know, that's kind of like the moment, like you said, where they fall in love. And then at the they're in that scene, they're talking about an orchestra and how Heloise has never been to an orchestra. And then it ends with her finally at the orchestra where they're both at the orchestra, but they're not there together. And that was really heartbreaking. And then there's a scene of them telling the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And then that's kind of how their story ends as well, which is equally as heartbreaking. And by the end of this movie, I kind of wanted to cry. Yeah. So when they're talking about that, that is it Greek? Yeah. So so when they're talking about that Greek story, they're talking about, you know, choosing the poet's ending versus the lover's ending. Choosing to turn around even though you know it's going to do more harm than good. And as Marianne is leaving the homestead for the last time, um, Heloise asks her to turn around, to look at her one last time, to choose this poet's ending. And, um... The movie goes on for about five more minutes after that, but having that kind of be the vocal conclusion to their story is a very nice way to, like, wrap up all of their interactions. And that scene that you were talking about with um, Marion and Heloise being at this orchestra together but not together, this movie ends in a very unique way, in a very captivating way, where um, Marianne is just 
staring directly at Heloise, like hoping that Heloise would look at her back. And the movie ends with this several minute long shot, uncut of Heloise not looking at Marianne, forcing herself to look at the orchestra and not breaking. And even you see it in her eyes. She wants to turn and face her, but she just can't. So I, I just thought that this movie had a really cool way to end. And it captures the emotions that it wants us to feel very well at the end. Yes. And I love how they use the environment and props within the environment to kind of show their love progressing. Like there was this painter before Marianne got there who couldn't get Heloise's face down for the portrait because Heloise refused to pose. And so one night Marianne is looking at this painting with a candle and right at the heart, the portrait goes up in flames. And that was kind of when you saw, I guess, Marianne's feelings for Heloise kind of boil over almost. And I thought that it was very artsy and very deep and that there's so many different interpretations to it. Yeah. So this is one of those movies that I probably will not watch again for a very long time. Um, but like it, it resonates very well and it also resonates very easily i think that even if you are not the kind of person that would be into a movie like this like you wouldn't be wasting your time to try it because if even though it's a slow burn getting up to that point the conversations that marianne and heloise have with each other are interesting and engaging and this movie takes paths that i would not expect it to take for example Marianne is brought on and was told, do not tell Heloise that you are there to paint her portrait. If she finds out that you are there to paint her portrait, she will refuse to cooperate. And so kind of how you would expect that storytelling to go is she would find out in the third act and then feel betrayed. And then that's the arc that they have to overcome. But that's not what happens in this movie. She finds out at the, that the, at the end of the first act and she's, kind of cool with it and she's like okay i understand and it's little storytelling things like that that sets this movie apart yeah because she's you know she's not agreeing because she's necessarily okay with the fact that the portrait's being done because that means that she has to go and get married but she's agreeing because it means she can spend more time with this person who she's suddenly found fascinating and found herself feeling emotions for that are unexpected yeah This is the kind of movie that when they first kiss, like, I think I said out loud, oh, thank God, finally. And (laughs) that can be interpreted, like, you know, if that's your thing, then like, you know, that's exactly what you're going to get out of this movie. Um, I want to sit this bad boy hmm, at like a 7.75. It's a really good story. It's very captivating. It's hard for me personally to watch, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. I agree with that rating. I can get down with that rating, 7.75. Like I said, I think that certain shots in this movie need to be hung in a museum forever. And the story was very captivating for me. Like I said, I it was an adjustment to get used to the lack of soundtrack and you definitely do have to be willing to pay close attention to it but i think it's worth at least one watch for anybody yeah um let's move on to brokeback mountain 
this is one of those movies that I've been meaning to watch for like five years. And I'm glad that we finally got around to doing this movie um, because this movie is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, most notably, like it is the first queer movie to get such strong accolades across the board. And to have it happen so long ago, I say so long ago, this movie came out in 2005 or 2004. So like, you know, 20 years ago, the landscape was very different for queer media. And I think that Brokeback Mountain helped pave a lot of the way for queer cinema um, moving forward. Um, Obviously there was stuff like Rent that was out around the same time. but, like, Brokeback Mountain shook everybody's core. Like, everybody was rooting for this movie to succeed in a way that you would not have expected people of the time to do. It definitely brought it to, like, the mainstream media. So this movie is about Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, whose characters' name are uh, Ennis and Jack, respectively. And they are two cowboys who are working this sheep herding job where they have to herd uh just a bunch of sheep across brokeback mountain and along the way they sleep together and then even after the job is finished the movie continues to be about them trying to go back to their regular lives going out of their way to reconnect with each other and how they flip-flop in terms of trying to continue their relationship and like balance their relationship and the relationships that they've had and have made since leaving Brokeback Mountain. Um, and what I like a lot about this movie, especially as far as it go, especially as far as like uh, queer movies go and portrait of a lady on fire is a, has a similar virtue to it. But neither of these movies are, like, about gay panic, which is really nice to see. Like, these characters in Brokeback Mountain have these, like, throwaway lines where they're like, oh, I'm not a queer, and stuff like that. But, like, they mention it once, and then they kind of don't circle back to it. And this movie isn't really about them getting hate-crimed or trying to deny the fact that they love another man. Like, it is genuinely just a romance story between these two cowboys. And that is a virtue that I really respect out of these movies. Yeah, it's not so much that they are freaking out or worried about the fact that, you know, they're in love with another man. It's they're more concerned about how society will treat them and how it's dangerous for them to, you know, live authentically as themselves in the environments that they're currently in. Yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, is a great actor. I love a lot of his movies. Heath Ledger is outacting him by a mile in this movie. Like, it's so crazy how you're like, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal, he's doing really good in this movie. And then you see a shot, just a shot with Heath Ledger in it. And you're like, oh, never mind. This kid, Heath Ledger's doing fantastic. In all honesty, that's Heath Ledger in anything he's in. Like, outacts everybody. Yeah, it just goes to show, like, he really was fantastic. Um, This movie got nominated for, like, every Oscar under the sun. It won for Best Directing, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Music Written for a Motion Picture. And then it was also nominated for Best Motion Picture, Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role, 
best performance by an actress in a supporting role, and then best achievement in cinematography. So, like, there was no corner of the award circuit that this movie did not touch. And I wholeheartedly agree with it all. I do, too. That every every nomination was well-earned with this movie. And there were some things about this movie that kind of caught me by surprise. Um, the first of all, um, not a lot of this movie is set on Brokeback Mountain. I kind of thought that would be the whole movie. It's like 40 minutes. Yeah, I was caught um, off guard by that, too. <laughs> granted, it's an important 40 minutes. Lots of stuff happens on that mountain. Um, but I expected it to be the whole movie. Um, so... <laughs> When they're doing the sheep herd, the sheep herding is the least important part of this movie. Almost to the point where I kind of didn't fully understand what they were doing. Like, I understood they needed to get the sheep from point A to point B. They needed to go through the mountain. And it was, like, a treacherous... Tre- not treacherous, but, like, it was difficult. Um, however... It- there were so many like logistical parts about it that like the owner of those sheep like went through this like laundry list of rules and expectations, none of which really come into play. Like that's why I was surprised that the mountain took so little of the movie because the way they set up the job, it feels like the movie is going to be about the job and it's really not. By the time they're up on that mountain, you don't care about the job anymore. Yeah. Um, they're talking about like grocery lists and um, ending the job early and predators and storms. But like at no point does that feel like I'm not going to call it a threat, but like at no point does it feel like the active focus of the movie. Um, now I know I knew going into this, what this movie was about. So maybe if you didn't fully know what this movie was about, maybe like the romance aspects, like the sudden nature of it makes it more compelling because you didn't know it was going to happen, but I did know it was going to happen. Um, but even then they move very fast. Hey, if you didn't want to watch a slow burn like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, boy, <laughs> howdy, do I have the opposite movie for you. It is like yeah. 20 minutes and they are making sweet, sweet love. Zero to a hundred in 20 minutes. With, you know, it ha- I'm just, you know, it had to have hurt. That's all I'm going to say. Because, like, it happens so quickly, right? And, like, no words are exchanged. There's just, like, they're laying in the tent together. And all of a sudden, like, it sounded like it hurts. Let's put it that way. That's I think that's as much detail as I'm willing to go into it. <laughs> yep. Um, but I want to commend... He, here's my favorite part about Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. Is there is not a single second... I'm not exaggerating. There's not a single second of this movie where Jake Gyllenhaal is not giving fuck me eyes. Like any time he could, he could be standing near Heath Ledger. He could be thinking about Heath Ledger. He could be making out with Heath Ledger. His eye, like his eyes are just enamored by the (laughs) idea of Heath Ledger's character. Like at, just at any point, he looks like he could faint from attraction. And <laughs> and I found that adorable. Like, it was genuinely really cute to see Jake Gyllenhaal, like, look at him in such 
an aspiring manner. Straight up hard eyes, like looking at him with reverence every single shot. Now, the most popular piece of trivia from this movie is that Heath Ledger broke Jake Gyllenhaal's nose because they were making out too hard. And that may be the best piece of trivia ever. You know what? You can tell that they had that connection. There <laughs> is so that much passion. And uh, Michelle Williams plays um, Heath Ledger's partner after they leave the mountain. Um, and from what I read, they were dating in real life at the time. And Michelle yeah. Williams was like, hey, just so I can understand like the betrayal of it, I need you two to just make out in front of me. And I'm like, me. all right. <laughs> like, hey, whatever, whatever helps, I guess. Um, this also continues my lifelong campaign to let Michelle Williams play one happy character. So let Michelle Williams be happy. Okay. Okay. What really like blew me away and kind of goes along with the pacing of this movie is the fact that they, you know, have their little love story up on this mountain and then it's time for them to go their separate ways. They've completed the job and they're so heartbroken that they have to go their separate ways. And then it's four years later. Yeah. And Ennis gets a postcard and it's from, is it Jack, Jack or J- Jack? It's from Jack. And he's like, all right, you know, fine, we'll meet up again. And then literally within 10 seconds of seeing each other, they're already making out and they've already been caught. They've already been caught by Alma. Yeah, so you would expect them, like, somebody finding out to be, like, the big climax of this movie. Yeah, no, like, Michelle Williams' character finds out instantly. Like, has not even been introduced to Jack. And she sees them making out through the window. And, like, she's devastated. She's instantly, like, divorce. Like, she wastes no time, like, separating herself from that situation. And she's not in very much of the movie, but, like, it's a lot of, like... she. I'm gonna say she makes it a little difficult on Ennis after the divorce. While they're married, Ennis, Ennis is not a great husband. Let's be clear. My biggest problem with this movie is that Ennis is painted as an incredibly aggressive husband. And I will never find that enticing. I will never find that entertaining. And it's... I get frustrated, genuinely frustrated when movies feel like they need to showcase a man's frustration. And the only way to do that is to take it out on the wife. I find that just abhorrent. And yeah, so I don't blame Alma, Amla, Alma, Alma, Alma. I don't blame Alma for wanting to get away from him. He is not contributing much. Um, well, you, you have to think. Like you're, it wasn't immediate that she asked for divorce. It was five years later because there's this scene where she was like, all these times you'd go up on this camping trip once a year for four to five years and you would say that you were going fishing and I'd be like, okay, we love fish, bring home some fish. And then you never would. You'd say that you caught it all and ate it all. And so one day I tied a little note to the end of your fishing rod after I saw that the price tag was still on it years later. But I was like, whatever, I'm still going to tie this little note. And then the note was still there when you got back, proving that you didn't use it to fish and weren't fishing for five years. They were doing a different verb that starts with half. 
Oh my God. Ayo. Um, and so after the divorce, um, Ennis's life kind of goes downhill. Um, Jack marries up. He marries Anne Hathaway's character, who is the heiress to a very successful farm equipment business. So he's not worried about money. They have money. Ennis never had money. And then after the divorce had somehow less money, he's living in trailers, doing odd jobs to get by. Um, And that's a point of contention towards the end of the movie, but like it doesn't really get brought up until then. Um, So Ennis tries a lot harder than Jack does to maintain normalcy. Jack is willing to throw everything away at the drop of a hat to be with Ennis. He he's the one putting in all the legwork. He's driving from Texas to Wyoming all the time. And Jack is like, let's just run away and do this. And Ennis is the one that's like saying no. He's the one that tries to keep some sort of his previous life. And watching that wedge be driven between them, it's it's heartbreaking in a sense because I kind of wonder like how much of Ennis's heart is genuinely in this and how much of it is just kind of like going through the motions. Like, is he still in love with Jack? Was he ever actually in love with Jack? Or does he just view this as some sort of like physical release? And the, the movie ends in a way where you know that, you know, Ennis was in love with Jack, but it's, it, w- it was frustrating kind of watch Ennis like, plant his foot so firmly in a way that like Jack could not get it to move. Well, I don't think it was necessarily not shown that Ennis was just as in as Jack was because you have to think when they split up the first time, Ennis was the one who was punching the wall and crying about having to walk away from him. And then there's the scene where everything kind of comes to a climax and Jack is like, let's do this. Let's run away. We can have our own ranch. We can do this. And Ennis is like, just drop it. You know, I told you that this couldn't happen and just leave me alone. Like, leave me here, whatever. You don't have to keep coming back. And then Jack is like, well, I just can't quit you. And then once again, you have Ennis sobbing his eyes out and his heart out because it's not necessarily that he doesn't love Jack. It's the fact that he loves Jack so much that he doesn't want to risk his safety if people find out about their relationship because he's already seen at nine years old what happens to people, quote unquote, like them when the town knows about their relationship yes um when i watched this i guess this maybe this was just me not understanding fully because when they leave the mountain and they go their separate ways my first interpretation of ennis like punching the wall and crying like my first interpretation of that was kind of like a what have i done kind of thing like him realizing like the intensity of what he just did um but you know in retrospect your explanation makes more sense well you definitely do get to see more of that struggle later on like in the scene of ennis getting married to alma you see like this guilt on his face the entire time he's saying these vows in a church and that's like kind of when you know that his mind is still his mind and his heart are still with jack yeah um the performances in this movie are great all around this is gonna. This is where I start getting blasphemous. Anne Hathaway's character could have been played by anybody. 
I love Anne Hathaway. Love her to death. One of my favorite people. Her character could have been anybody. Like It's not her. It's the character. 100%. Yeah. She is not on screen a lot. She does not really bring the same depth and tension to the marriage. Or at least the character doesn't bring as much as Alma did for Ennis. So... Like, you know, Ennis is the main character of this movie, as opposed to Jack. Um, And so it makes sense that their marriage isn't as strongly written. um, But that consequence is felt. Yes, 100%. And you can, you, you see the difference in the marriages, especially at the end when Ennis makes that final phone call to her and just how, like, I guess you could blame it on grief or whatever but she's just so disconnected from it all yeah um i think this movie is super captivating i i liked it pretty much the entire way through um i want to give this movie an eight and a half i like this movie a lot i was i was yeah i was gonna go eight and a half eight point seven five because it is like there, we have grown up in the time where there have been so many memes made about this movie that kind of made it feel in a way like a joke. But then you watch it and you're like, oh, this is actually a heartbreaking story. Yeah. And Jack's fate is like, oh. so l- let's break it down because the movie goes by super fast. The movie like doesn't take the time to break it down. Um, So when Ennis finds out that Jack is dead, he calls Anne Hathaway and he's like, what happened? And she tells the story about how he was blowing, he was pumping air into a tire. The tire blew up and it hit him in the face and killed him. But when she's telling the story, um, there is like no joke, like a 10 second shot shown very quick of Jack being jumped by a group of guys. And so the implication of it, or at least what I inferred from it, is people found out that Jack was gay and beat him to death. And yeah. the the quickness in which that happens is heartbreaking and unsettling at the same time. And then the movie just kind of keeps going. And, and it's kind of like, goes and sees Jack's family and um you see Ennis kind of like he finds a piece of Jack's clothing and like whole like that's the moment where everything catches up to him where he really understands the finalness of the situation and watching him break down from that ah ah yeah and by the end when you see those two shirts that they both wore up on that mountain on their final day with each other on that mountain. When you see those two shirts still hanging there at the end in Ennis's closet, you know that he's never going to love anybody the way that he loved Jack. Yeah, so this movie rips. You should watch it. If you haven't, it's so good. So it is, I'm going to say it's almost impossible to transition into talking about Moonlight because this is the, I'm going to say the most different movie that is on our itinerary for today because this movie, I'm going to say, this movie is not as gay as I thought it was going to be. Valid. Um, especially after watching Brokeback and then watching this. Like, my gay expectations were a little higher. 
not that that's like a fault of the movie or like I'm like I'm going to lower points from this movie because of that. It's just like I remember when this movie came out and like people talking about how um, it was like a very exceptional queer movie. And it is. It definitely is. But the the gay parts of the movie definitely take a backseat to all the other problems of the movie. And when I say problems, I mean like conflicts. I can agree, but I also feel like that speaks to the difference between the white gay experience and the black gay experience. Yes, absolutely. Um, So Moonlight is a movie told in three distinct parts, um, childhood, young adult, and full adulthood of this um, kid named Chiron, 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 and it's showing like, it's showing us his experience growing up, you know, growing up in a black poor neighborhood in the nineties in, I think it was Miami or something to that effect, somewhere in Florida during the height of the crack epidemic. And you see him go through a multitude of personal tragedies a lot of which are slow tragedies. Few things happen to him quickly. It's a lot of things building up and building up and building up. And that's where a lot of the tension of this movie comes from. Yeah, and, you know, it starts with him being little, and he's called little because he's the littler of the boys on the playground. And you see him just right off the bat getting chased and bullied, and you're like, oh my god, gosh like it just really throws you straight into the fire yeah and um mahershala ali is in this movie and he's we see him opening of this movie like you said um little gets chased through a field and he finds a haven in this abandoned apartment and mahershala ali's character finds him in there helps him get home and becomes like effectively a mentor uh, a father figure too little and because of the way this character was introduced i expected him to be in way more of the movie than he actually was Mm -hmm. and that brings up like one of the bigger problems that i had about this movie is this so i just want to say before we get too deep into this it's weird critiquing a movie like this because this movie tackles a very heavy concept, um, and it's based on the writer and director's life. Like, it's, you know, almost autobiographical. Uh, he, he took a lot of inspiration from his own life to make this movie. And so it's weird to watch a movie that is so intense and heavy and dark and then be like, I think the cinematography was a little weird. Like it, that's a that's not the energy I want to bring to this um, conversation. So, but what I do want to say is this movie chose to focus on parts that I feel like if I was in creative control of this movie, I would not have done. I would have chosen differently. It specifically around Juan, which is Ali's character. Um, he dies in the course of this movie, and it gets brought up in a passing conversation. And that's all we really see of it. It's somebody saying, I know you've been feeling alone since Juan died. And that's kind of the last we hear about Juan. Like, we don't see a service for him. We don't 
hear the news being broken. It's it's a it's a passing line. And I feel like because of how important that character was in the first act of the movie, I wish I had gotten a little bit more in terms of closure or um, just like out of respect for the character. I wish that we had gotten a little bit more of like a um, closed package when it comes to this, when it came to his offsend in the movie. Yeah, it kind of felt like they killed him off just as another hit to Shiren's, you know, personality and life, just to, like, knock him down yet another level. And I agree with that, like, plot point. You know, if if that was an event that you wanted to happen as a knock to the character, cool. I think it would have been more impactful if we had, like, gone through the event with the character. Exactly. And a similar thing happens toward in, in the third act of the movie. When, uh, in the third act, Shiren and his mom move from Florida to Georgia. Again, they bring it up in a passing conversation. And it's not, like, really relevant, I would say, to the overall structure of the story um it, i mean like it's important because where they were was an incredibly negative place it was enabling all the negative experiences that they were going through so moving to georgia was a good choice for them i just wish that we had been a little bit more part of that conversation and that decision yeah because in act two shiren stands up to his bully ends up getting in legal trouble due to standing up to his bullies. And then because of that legal trouble, they end up in Atlanta. And it's like, okay, but we just like jumped over this like key personality, life altering moment, years of his life. And like, it feels like we missed a lot of the like meat of the story, I guess. And it's, it's, it's like little foundational problems like that that clutter a lot of this movie. Now, that being said, performances across the board, solid. Phenomenal. Strong. Uh, Mahershala Ali has never met a role he has not knocked out of the park. And part of the reason why I was so sad that his character was kind of dropped off was because of his performance of it. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I wanted to see more of the character, but I also wanted to see more of the performance. All of the actors that played Shiren were really good. Um, the youngest version of him, Little, um, so cute. does not talk. D- does not talk a lot. Um, and I still think that you know the performance was still. We always knew how that child was feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a good showcase of good writing, and it's also a good showcase of a good performance, especially from someone at a young age. So I and. Um, I would have to say I also really liked um, Janelle Monet as um, Juan's girlfriend, wife, partner, um, Teresa. Teresa is maybe my favorite character in the movie because Jan- Janelle Monet brought a warmth to her. Yes. That every time you saw her on screen as an audience member, you feel comforted. And that is such a strong atmosphere to bring to a scene. Um, I just, I soaked in every second of it. Yeah, definitely. And the scenes with her, Juan, and Little, and how honest they are with him and upfront they are about life, but yet comforting to him 
and like it you know i don't even know how to describe like you said it just there's just so much warmth in those scenes like you feel like you're like actually glimpsing into somebody's real life in those moments because they talk to little like an adult not in the sense of like they're trying to drop a bunch of heavy subjects on him but they want him they are his biggest believers they believe in him the most they want him to stand up for himself they want him to succeed more than anyone else so and that is shown in everything said and not said and that's why those scenes are my favorite from the movie um and just to round out like strong performances um naomi harris plays his mother in the movie and she has the most dynamic character arc in this movie because we see her go from the hard-working single mother and we we watch her stumble down the addiction pipeline and a, a weak performance could ruin that arc but she she plays it so strongly and so well that like even in the moments where you're mad at her for watching her choose her addiction over her family like you still get kind of a sense of like sympathy about it in a way where you're like you know she does a good job at showing how not in control she is. And um, that, that's a very important part of that performance. Yeah, definitely. There are definitely bits of her on screen time that are difficult to watch to where I was like, ooh, I might need to take a lap for a second here. Yeah, it's rough. So uh, there's one character that is also a consistent in Shiren's life that we have not mentioned yet. How do you feel about our boy Kevin? Indifferent, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for, looking at this strictly from like a movie perspective, like that character could have been stronger. Like, and there are scenes. The most predictable scenes are the scenes that have Kevin in them. Is the way I'll put it. Because Kevin is the character that. Um, Shiren, like, I'm going to say experiments with romantically and sexually. So um, we have an innate fondness of Kevin, or at least a desire to like this guy, because we like Shiren, and Shiren likes Kevin. Um, However, this movie sets up a very clear, like, um, downfall for Kevin, where as soon as... So... (laughs) There is a moment where Shiren's bully at school goes to Kevin and says something to the effect of like, hey, remember when you beat the shit out of, the, out of this one kid? And Kevin goes, yeah, that was awesome. I, I would be totally willing to do that again. And as soon as Kevin says that, I'm like, oh, he's going to beat the shit out of Shiren. And hey, guess what happens? <laughs> like the bully nags Kevin into just at, into just decking Shiren. And it's the whole setup and execution of that is difficult to watch from like a personal perspective. Cause like, obviously it, it's rough to watch friends hurt each other because mm-hmm. their reputation is on the line. You know, we're watching Kevin choose his reputation over Shiren. Um, but I also feel like that whole concept was really rushed because 
Kevin never seemed like the kind of guy that would betray Shiren like that. And then um, that character flip happens in like two minutes, like genuinely two minutes of runtime. We see that character flip. So it kind of goes back to that aspect of like what this movie chooses to emphasize. And so I think it would have been more interesting to see this like maybe more of the fallout from something like that because the consequence of that is after kevin hits shiren not immediately after but very quickly after that's when shiren stands up to his bully hits the bully with a chair and now we're in the third act yeah so it it it's just a sequence that happens more quickly than i would have liked And I guess you could say that we do get some foreshadowing to this because one of the main themes of Shiren's life is before this little boy even knows what sexuality is, people are already assuming for him and calling him slurs and making fun of him for how he behaves. And when he is a child, he and Kevin kind of, you know, play fight on the playground so that way, and Kevin's like, you know, you got to show them that you're not soft. You got to show them that you're tough. So beat me up to show them that you're tough. And so I guess that's kind of like the flip side of it of, you know, and like I got to show them that I'm not soft. So I have to beat you up because that's the mindset we grow up in with this toxic masculinity and toxic heterosexuality that I have to portray here. And, you know, throughout the entire time kevin's telling shiren to just like stay down stay down but shiren's like no i'm not gonna show that i'm soft so i'm gonna keep getting up until other people have to intervene to keep me down as well but it like you said those five minutes from them having this intimate moment to then suddenly kevin's beating shiren up to then shiren is beating his bully up and going to juvie and then we're in the third act it definitely feels rushed for all of the build-up we have to that moment because the third act starts and shiren is the driver for uh, what we can assume is a drug deal and uh, we see, you know, he has a gun on him. He's waiting in the car. He's very like, he's very clearly lived a changed life from when we last checked in with him. It, it just felt so strange to have such a strong shift in character and only have like one event to really tie back into it. Now, I'm not saying we needed a whole prison arc where we see Shiren go into the cell and like, walk out a changed man but it really felt like we saw drops in the bucket compared to what his personality was going to become mm-hmm. um now i would like to say i like this movie I, I i think the first i i just wish that more of it was like the first act of the movie that this is one of the stronger cinematic first acts i've seen in a long time so i i want to make sure that my position on this movie is clear that like despite the faults i find in it i still think this is very strong generally across the board yeah i definitely think that it is deserving of all the accolades it received but you know we also have to address the other aspects yeah so <laughs> this movie is incredibly serious in a way that I wasn't expecting it to be. Um, there's, there's just something about like the, I, I, I am, I was so unfamiliar with this movie going into it. Mm-hmm. All I knew about this movie was Mahershala Ali is, was in it, the poster and um, 
the Oscar fiasco. Yes. And let let me just say what an incredibly this might be the worst movie to have like a fun, silly goof em up about. Exactly. Like, like I'm looking at the uh, nominees for Best Picture that the year. If you don't know what happened in uh, during the 2017 Oscars, um, La La Land was announced as the Best Picture winner, but they were wrong. It was supposed to be Moonlight. So all of La La Land's like cast and crew got on stage to accept Best Picture, and they had to be like, "Actually, we were wrong. It's Moonlight." Ugh. And it cre like. I'm going to say the worst Oscar moment in history. Um, Honestly. And after watching this movie, I'm like, with the exception of maybe Hacksaw Ridge, none of these nom no, no, no other of these nominees were as like, could that have been worse to happen to just in terms of like, tone because it's the oscars obviously they have to play it off like teehee what a silly little what a silly little goofy mistake what how funny is that and moonlight is like hey here's this incredibly traumatic story about my personal life but no yeah thanks for thanks for laughing us up with you know emma stone over there appreciate it yeah thanks thanks for uh you know taken away from this you know, groundbreaking film for the community it's speaking for. Yeah, because this is like, this is the first queer movie to win Best Picture, I think. Um, or, or at least one of the first in a way that like, I, and I also think it's the first like all black cast to win Best yes. Picture. Like this movie broke a bunch of um, records, but it kind of all got overshadowed, which is unfortunate because... A movie like this does not deserve that um, baggage. No, it is a very powerful movie that deserves to have its spotlight. Yeah, um, I think overall this was a good, good watching experience. Good movie overall. Um, the 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 beats of this movie could be tuned a little bit, but overall, like just a good experience overall. I, I have. Very little else to say. I just enjoyed this movie. I agree for all of those reasons as well. So what are you giving this one as a rating? I'm giving this a seven and a quarter. I liked it. It's just, I liked it. Didn't love it. It was better than okay. So it sits at a fresh 7.25. I'm going to give this one a seven and a half. It was very powerful to watch. I think that overall, even with the things we mentioned that we felt like were lacking, that the pacing was pretty decent with this movie and like i said i feel like it deserved all the the accolades that it did get at the end of the day yeah this movie is not boring by any sense of the imagination so you it, it's it'd be difficult to not be engaged they do a good job at, at keeping you in the movie for sure now let's talk about the danish girl there's a lot to unpack here like a lot so let's start simple the danish girl is a movie about Eddie Redmayne's character. We get introduced to this character um, as Einar. He is married to um, uh, a woman named Gerda. And long story short, she needs him to model a dress for something. And then while holding the dress, pseudo wearing the dress, there's like a gender revelation is what I'm going to call it. And this happens in the first, like, ten minutes of the movie. And then the rest of this movie um, is about who we get introduced as Einar gets reintroduced as Lily. 
and watching Lily explore her gender in a time where it is incredibly unorthodox to do so. Um, and the this movie focuses mostly, and to my chagrin, the effects that it has on the marriage between Lily and Gerda. Um, it affects their social lives. It affects their personal lives. But like this, I think this movie spends a lot of time focusing on Lily and Gerda's marriage and um, w- what it's like for someone to transition their gender in the early 1900s. Yeah, I'd say um, my uh, biggest thing to say about this is let trans people play trans people. Yes. Um, so this movie came out in 2015, which is not that long ago. And even as this movie was being made, um, people were talking about um, how Eddie Redmayne's casting in this was not a great decision. And I, I've read some articles saying that as time goes by, Eddie Redmayne wishes less and less that he did this role. And so, like, respect for that, um, for acknowledging that. And I understand to an extent um, the idea of having a cis man play this role because this is about, like, watching the gender discovery happen. Um, But at the end of the day, like, Eddie Redmayne gets to go back and just be a cis dude after the movie's over. And this movie carries a little bit more weight um, and maybe needed to be handled with a little bit more tact. And that's what a lot of this movie comes down to is I think this movie was going in the right direction, but did not have nearly the guidance it needed to achieve what it wanted. Yeah. And that's partially because a lot of the information they needed from the story, the real life story that this is kind of, that this finds its basis in was very hard to track down. And, you know, at that point, maybe you need to take a step back and do more research before you put a movie into production or a script into production about it. Yeah. So like you said, this is based on a a real woman, but this is, this is more closely an adaptation of a book about that woman. And the book that they were adapting was not entirely accurate to start with. So they were starting with flawed source material. Um, and, and it kind of shows in a lot of how this movie is presented. Now, to talk about this movie in a way that's like outside the bubble of its um, representation of, uh, of of a trans person. My biggest gripe about this movie is that this movie tried so hard to make Lily a shitty person. Mm-hmm. And that was frustrating because Alicia Vikander, who plays Gerda, um, Lily's wife, is carrying this movie on her back oh my god (laughs) like this movie would not be watchable without her holy crap um but at every opportunity this movie throws lily under the bus with um adultery with secrets with um betrayal just treating gerda like a like a bad person um 
And like Lily just does all these things that like a bad spouse would do. And then she blames it. Like that was all Lily. Your husband, Einar still loves you a lot. Like you don't get to do that. That's disgusting. And that was what made this movie so frustrating was watching the characters kind of like split the personality and then kind of like shift blame into whoever it was more appropriate for Einar or Lily when it's all Lily and Lily's just written to be a bad person. Yeah, it was the, you know, toxic projection on the, oh, but it wasn't me. I wasn't in the right mindset. That wasn't me who did that. That was, that was the other me. And it's like, that's not how it works. And I guess there are some, like, not even that I can understand or empathize with or sympathize, but like, I see where they were going with this story, I guess, because, you know, you have Gerda who's being very wishy-washy on her support for Lily and who Lily is and letting Lily live. But then, you know, that's still no excuse to go and keep secrets and cheat on your spouse. Like, just leave them at that point. Just leave. And I was lulled into a false sense of security by this movie. Mm -hmm. Because Gerda is the one that encourages Lily to express herself and helps her experiment and, uh, you know, wear clothes that fit and wear makeup that blends and style hair correctly. Like, Gerda is the one that is showing them this path and and do and doing it knowing full well what this is leading to at no point is gerda like i don't want you to be a woman like she is like no if this is who you need to be then be that person um and but like you said as lily starts doing like more and more things to damage their relationship gerda takes it out on lily's gender expression which like i'm not saying that doesn't make sense that makes sense we have a very obvious linchpin of contention you know it, it that that makes sense why why we're focusing blame on that um but as the movie continues, that that um, judgment continues to pile on in a way that makes neither of the characters look good. <laughs> yeah, they are both, at the end of the day, they both have incredibly toxic traits that are very much shown throughout this movie. Yeah. Um, I also just think a lot of this movie, maybe it's because... Of, like, the the period and um, the setting. Like, I, I just... I don't, I don't vibe with, like, the atmosphere of this movie and the tone of this movie. Um, remove everything about, like, gender expression. And this is just kind of, like, a boring movie set 120 years ago. Like... About adultery. Like, yeah. It, um, so, the only thing that was keeping me engaged in this movie was the exploration of gender expression. And even that was not done very well. So it was, this movie was really being held together by duct tape and glue. I definitely agree. And regardless of any, you know, thing that has happened or scandal or situation, I am just not a fan of Amber Heard's acting because you can just always tell that she's acting. Like, it's Amber Heard acting instead of her character every time she's on screen. 
Here's the best way to um, explain Amber Heard's performance in this movie. Every time her character showed up on screen, I was like, who's that? I never remembered her. Anytime there was more than a scene in between her appearances. Mm-hmm. Every time she came back, I was like, I had to like actively think about like, why are they talking like, why are they talking to her? Like they know her. Why is she so familiar with everybody? Like it just, it was forgettable. Yeah. And you know, she was very similar to Gerda in the sense that in the beginning, she was very encouraging about Lily and Lily's, you know, want to express her gender. And then suddenly she wasn't suddenly Einar was perverted and, Da, 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 da. And it's like, no, Lily is just Lily. Let Lily live. And and, and I want to make sure that, like, w- I understand that was the expression of the time, right? So, like, having these characters be wishy-washy on their support, like, you know, private support but public shame, that, that, that wasn't uncommon. That was no. the norm. So to have characters portray that is not a fault of the movie, right? It's realistic to have characters do that. Uh, and and having Amber Heard's character do that makes more sense because yeah. she's not as close with Lily. She, you know, she her reputation could be damaged for these people that she's not that close to. Um, but it hurts more to watch Gerda do it. Um, what I did like to an extent is like... Um, watching Lily not really have a lot of uh, resistance when it came to like actually following following through on gender reassignment. Mm-hmm. Um, the the movie does not really showcase the hurdles that she has to overcome. It's kind of just like, hey, I want to do gender reassignment. Here's a doctor that'll do it. He says you're all good to go, and so so that was nice, you know, to, to watch that happened in a little bit more of an expedited fashion. Um, doesn't end good, but, you know, g- getting to that point uh, in a rather rapid fashion um, is kind of a relief to see in a movie like this. Yeah, and it, you kind of see as the, you know, hope of gender reassignment, you know, becomes a thing and how that really validates how Lily has been feeling because all these other doctors have been calling her crazy and all these other various diagnoses have been placed upon her. And so to have somebody actually believe what she is saying, you see how that kind of like takes a weight off of her shoulders. But then at the same time, after that, you know, first surgery, you see how much the dysphoria is really impacting her and why she's rushing so quickly to get that second surgery, which because of her rushing does not end the way we all hope it would. Yeah. And that, that final scene, um, Lily eventually, you know, succumbs to the injuries of her, um, of, of the final surgery. And what it, it was watching that scene. I had a lot of mixed emotions because it kind of, again, based on it's historical fiction, but based on a person, mm-hmm. you know, so it, we're, it's a, it, again, we're in weird, uh, stomping grounds here, but the the end of this movie falls heavily into like the barrier gaze trope. Um, you know, because this person is genderqueer, they do not get to survive this movie. Mm-hmm. And watching that happen is just frustrating in 
a way that this movie did not intend to do so. You know, Lily's death is supposed to be heartbreaking, but because Lily has finally reached the end of her journey in discovering her gender, only to die right afterwards. That's the intention of it. But what we see as a genderqueer audience is we see um, someone who was failed by the system again. Mm -hmm. We see someone who tried really hard to make this work for themselves. And um, instead of feeling like sadness, uh, I, I, I get filled with like just a general disappointment more than anything else. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Like, it's like, once again, the happily ever after is taken away from a queer person. And during this scene, we see Gerda, you know, cry as we watch Lily's life fade from her eyes. Um, And it it was nice, at least, to, despite all the back and forth that Lily and Gerda have... um, that at the end of the day, Gerda was there at Lily's side. Gerda was wishing the best for her. And Gerda did want Lily to make it through this. So, you know, even through all the complications, having Gerda there at the end um, was nice to see. I definitely agree with that. Gerda really pulled through to be there for her girl. All the male love interests in this movie are so boring. Sorry to pivot so hard. Sorry to pivot so hard, but like maybe part of the reason like this movie doesn't function is just because it's just it's boring. And also, I think there's a lack. There's like a pseudo love triangle that is mostly forced upon by miscommunication. And so during Lily's first outing as Lily, she's at a party. A guy hits on her and a guy kisses her. Gerda sees this happen, brings it up as a point of contention, and that's kind of where this adultery ball rolls for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But but during this scene, it is obvious Lily does not want to kiss this guy and does not kiss him back when he forces himself upon her. But Lily does not express that at all. At no point was Lily like, I didn't want to kiss him. She just kind of like keeps going with it. Like, like that, that was the easiest situation to explain yourself out of safe, you know, save your marriage by explaining yourself with a single sentence. Be like, he forced himself on me. I didn't want it. I'm sorry you saw it, but that was like, I, I was in a situation I couldn't get out of. And then you talk about it and you walk away, you know, with less doubt in your relationship. But because that conversation was not had, everything just, um, builds exponentially in a, and to have such a weak foundation for that really made it hard to um, root for any of the characters. And I definitely feel like on top of that, Lily kind of convinced herself that she did want it and that if she was going to, you know, if she was a woman, she would want the attention of a man. She would accept the attention of a man. And that was kind of like another point of contention that I had where I was like, no, like, just tell him to F off, like push him away. You obviously don't want this. And then the man ends up not wanting Lily for who she is at the end of the day anyway. And towards the end of the movie, Gerda starts macking out with this, um, 
rich art curator type guy again could not care less about this guy it is so inconsequential to my enjoyment of this movie how this blonde stupid man is like making out with gerda like it's just it's it's just boring right the parts of this movie that aren't disappointing are just boring Mm -hmm. um huh this is one of those movies where the more i talk about it the more i realize how little i liked it yeah um because when i'm in the movie and i'm and i was watching it i was like this is boring but like it's not offensively bad but now that we've like broken down all the parts of it i didn't like i'm like maybe i was too generous when i was first thinking about this movie i'm having Um, those same thoughts what what do you think you're gonna rate this one i don't know because i'm not done oh (laughs) <laughs> um i i i want to discuss certain aspects of this movie um in the sense that this movie does depict um gender discovery in a way that i liked not all the time because i was looking through some other reviews of this movie and um a common critique that i saw was like how quickly we got from einar to lily where it was just like Einar held a dress like once and was like, I want to do this forever mm-hmm. is like a, a weird way to depict that. But I understand that that was just kind of like a means to an end to try to get it, like just get us to the more important part of the movie. So like I'm willing to overlook that part. Um, but watching Gerda help Lily like dress herself and, Um, wear makeup like that is a very exciting thing to watch watch someone like um safely be able to express themselves and have somebody help you with that is uh it is an an incredibly amazing feeling uh that i'm glad that i was able to like watch in a movie there's also um a scene that I liked. It's a little bit of an awkward scene just because of how like it, it's one of maybe the most intimate scenes I've seen like in a movie just in general where like Lily is by herself and she's looking at herself naked in a mirror and just kind of like watching her, like she's looking at her body and like trying to like feminize it. Mm Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's an incredibly personal and intimate scene that I think was um, a good depiction of like what that process looks like. Um, so it, it, it seems like that, that even though a lot of this movie has like not great foundation is able to pull itself up a little bit because I, I like I said, at its core, I think this movie wanted to do the right thing, but didn't have the right way to do it. So this is a, a, a big statement, but on t- what I think is maybe a little bit, I don't want to say more important, but more impactful to the end result of a movie is um, not as much having trans actors play trans characters. That's very important. But I think what's more impactful is having trans directors direct trans movies. Yes. This movie was directed by Tom Hooper, who gang directed cats. I... Um, you know, that's me cherry picking. He also directed Les Mis in the King's speech. This guy is capable of making a good movie. I'm not, I'm not trying to box him into that corner, but like, this is just, you know, a dude's, it just a, a dude's perspective on 
what it's like to be a trans woman. And I, I think that more than anything showcases um, the insight that you get. This is a movie about a trans character that is made for cis people to be able to digest. And I'm not saying that that's inherently a bad thing. I'm saying that it's obvious when you watch it. Um, this is not a trans movie for trans people. Um, and so because of that, uh, a, a lot of depictions kind of get skewed or uh, misrepresented. Yeah, and I definitely agree with the let trans actors direct trans films, but also let trans writers tell trans stories. Let them tell the authentic experiences instead of through the cis perspective. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that some of the parts that you liked were, you know, the moment where Gerda and Lily are, you know, playing with makeup and clothes to get Lily dressed up for the gala. And as somebody who has been the Gerda in those situations, you know, helping my friends and the people in my life express whatever gender identity they choose and, you know, being the one to help dress them, being the one to help do their hair, their makeup, their nails. It's such an honor to be that person for somebody and to fit that role. And I definitely think that they captured the energy of that and the playfulness that's involved in the, you know, the giggles and the high energy and just the joy that you see come out of the person when they finally feel like what's in the mirror reflects what they've felt about themselves the entire time. So a lot of people are very harsh on this movie and I could be too, but I, I still, I, I wish there was a better like first big trans movie. This isn't the first big trans movie. There's been other, you know, big trans movies, but like th this movie got a lot of reputation. This is the first big trans movie of like our generation. You know, we watched this movie come out, whether or not we actually saw it when it came out, you know, is neither here nor there, but like, this is like the first big trans movie of our generation and better ones could have been made. And I say that right up front. Um, this is not, but this is also not the worst thing that, you know, we could have gotten out of this. So when I rate this movie, I give it, it's a lot of, um, I, I'm cutting this movie a lot of slack in ways that like maybe I shouldn't. Um, huh, that being said, I think it sits. This one's tough. I want to hear what you say. No, you gotta, you always first. You gotta go. See, I've noticed that I'm always first. That's and just, I, that's how it goes. That's just the formula. <laughs> If it ain't I, broke, don't fix it. <laughs> um, I think it doesn't make a difference. I'm I'm teetering between two scores that are right next to each other. I'm gonna say because after talking about it so much and realizing that this movie is more flawed than I felt like it was when I was watching it, five point seven five. I was gonna give it like a flat six, if not a five point seven five as well. I definitely think there's a lot of things that are lacking and those definitely overpowered the few things that felt authentic, I guess. Yeah. So like if, if there, if somebody was like, I want to watch a movie to help me understand the trans experience, I would wait for, I would wait for a better movie to come out before yes. I showed them this one. Um, but I don't know if this movie at the moment needs to be like blacklisted. Right. Yeah. So, um, this Pride Month, we really didn't focus on the happily ever afters and the fun movies. We kind of went through all the heavy hitters. 
So maybe are next there fun <laughs> ones? There are. Let's there t- are. Let's, no. There no, are. Actually, actually, you bring up a good point. I thought about this as I was watching these movies. I'm like, damn, if we do Pride Month next year, we got to pick some more fun movies. And then I was trying to think, like, what are some fun gay movies? And I, the only one I came up with was Booksmart. I mean, there's Booksmart. There's, you know, everybody's classic. But Mom, I'm a cheerleader. Like the, you know, the more campy gay movies. Like we could go okay. through those. And so okay. I think that's what we should definitely do next year. But, Craig, what are we doing for July? Hey, are you ready for a tonal pivot like you've never seen before? <laughs> um, you ready to put your cis hat on? <laughs> um, so on the Permanent Good main feed, we're doing Summertime Sadness, where Alex and I are just watching a bunch of sad movies. You already know this. It's the end of the month. You've you've watched all those episodes get released. Um, but uh, so for July, we are gonna balance it out by on small and tall we're gonna be doing teen comedies movies that i feel like in general even if they don't take place during summer teen comedies just have like a summer aura about them like a representation of summer um and so that's kind of the vibe we're going for um i did close the document that had the list of movies that we're watching um okay so For our teen comedy month in July, we are watching Wet Hot American Summer, American Pie, Euro Trip, and Not Another Teen Movie. Now I know what you're thinking. Craig, none of those movies came out after 2010. There's no way any of them aged well. None of them I'm aware. I'm very aware. That's part of the fun, gang. We're diving nose first. We're going in. Oh, this is going to be a whole month of cringe. Let's get it. God, it's going to be a it's going to be like 90 minutes of Bug and I just explaining bad jokes and then cringing at them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll catch you next month for our teen comedies. Thank you for joining us for our Pride Month special. I'm Bug and I'm small. And I'm Craig and I'm tall. See you next time. Have fun, be safe and make good choices. Mwah!